Hello and welcome to another episode of Into the Tech of It. I am your host, Jaime Cabrera, and today we will have a conversation with Dr. Seth Nielsen. Dr. Nielsen is the founder and chief scientist of Crimson Vista. He holds a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in computer science from BYU and a PhD in computer science from Rice University. In addition to his work at Crimson, he is also an adjunct assistant professor at UT Austin. Dr. Nielsen has consulted a wide range of technical projects, including the development of security communications, commodity hardware acceleration, secure file systems, privacy, auditing, vulnerability analysis, and cryptographic implementation. He also pursues various research topics, including novel approaches for computer security instruction, bot detection in social media, and methods for attacking formally verified systems. In this episode, we will talk about data quality and data security and how regulation and current policy oftentimes finds challenges when convenience and cost get in the way. Well, hello, Dr. Nielsen. It's great to have you here and thank you for being with us here to talk a little bit about tech and policy. Uh, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about a little bit about data security and data quality. Is that correct? That's correct. And We're going to talk. Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, I just and and uh, I want to know like if you can just give us like a, a a bird's eye view of these two topics so that the audience that we have can just kind of like understand where we stand and and how this is going to relate to to tech tech policy. Yeah, so data quality was actually new to me um, a few years ago. I had somebody introduce me to the concept, which is basically just this. Uh, you have the right data at the right time for the right people in the right places. That might sound really obvious, but it turns out it's it's more complicated than you might think. Okay, and then data security is this other aspect, right? Like, so it's a, it's a complement, but it's not part of the same thing, or is it? Yeah, so it's it's not the same thing, but the, the, the kind of emphasis I've been making lately is how you can't have data security without data quality. Okay, so it's it's not just an enhancer, it's something that it's it's needed in order to have like great data security, right? Correct. And one of the current uh, issues that we can see um, that are affecting not just the people, but also companies and governments. So this was really what kind of was mind blowing for me is, um, so I, I have a, like I said, uh, I, I learned about this from um, a, a consultant who works with data quality um, and uh, she introduced me to her book. And there was this part in the book where she was talking about her experience working with a company with their data quality. Um, and she talks about data life cycle. Where does it come in? How is it processed? How is it maintained? When is it destroyed? And her acronym, which we can talk about later, but just so I can read this quote, is, is POSMAD, P-O-S-M-A-D. But, but let me just read this quote because I yeah. think it's... It's really fascinating. She says, a question can be raised similar to the one asked when looking at POSNAT at the organizational levels. Do all rules that obtain the data 
receive the training, the same training and have the same set of data entry standards. If not, once again, there's a data quality problem that you don't know its size or which data are most affected. One project team knew that many departments could use the same data, but they thought only one department could create or update them. Okay. Through this application of lifecycle thinking, they found that people in other departments actually had the ability to create and update data. Okay. When I have told this story to a lot of people, including people who aren't technical, they have really, really, really caught the idea in their organization. Like one person works at pest control and I was explaining data quality to her. And I said, who can create a customer account? And she said, oh, it's the customer service agent that you call. I said, really? Is that the only person who can create? She paused for a minute, she thought about it and she said, oh, well, I guess the actual uh, pest control people who go out and do pest control Mm -hmm. have the ability to create an account on the spot. She had not been thinking about them as being creators of that data, Mm -hmm. but they were. And this has shown up over and over and over again in multiple organizations that I talked to. They think they know who creates data, but sometimes you have to poke around further to be absolutely sure. Okay, and and this is not just, I mean, as you said, this goes across industries, right? Like this is something that uh, should should companies have either one, um, I guess one team looking into this or should this be like a more of a culture, a company culture to just know where data is coming from or where it's going? It's a little bit of both. There, there does need to be a recognition of the problem and for the security part of it, mm-hmm. the security team needs to integrate with the data architects. Okay. There are often data architects or data stewards. If the, they used to use data owner. Nowadays, we're kind of shifting to steward. Okay. There are data stewards who, who should know the company's data. Sometimes those individuals and the security individuals aren't talking like they should be. Okay. And, uh, and, and when you talk about, you know, this and for the audience, some of them are, might not be you know, very well, well-versed and, and, you know, what is a data owner and, and or a steward, right? Um, how does, how can a company that's either small or how can uh, a legislator just look into this and be like, oh, this is something that we need to like tackle. Like what's the impact on the users that we should be concerned about? So let me actually mention briefly there, there about data steward and owner. Um, there are differences of opinions about which terms should be used. Um, I prefer data owner to be the actual person that the data belongs to. Okay. We used to not think about that quite as much prior to the GDPR and some of those other kinds of laws, but we should think about the data owner as who the data belongs to. A data steward, of course, a steward is a, a term I guess we don't use 
much nowadays. But the, the idea of a steward um, was that they were somebody who might even run the business for somebody else, but it's not their business. Their their goal is to increase the success of the of the owner. So when you think about a company having data in their in their systems, mm-hmm. it, uh, I like these terms because they move away from the idea that somehow because they have it in their systems they own it, okay. and instead they are responsible for it, like a steward would be responsible for it. Oh, I and I see the difference because, yeah, uh, in my you know my previous understanding was that. Well, you know, like it's like who owns the data, right? As you said, and then like where the data is physically located, where's the server? And uh, and my question was, you know, like it's one thing to look at this from the private sector side, right? Um, as you mentioned, the GDPR, uh, it's the data protection law in, in Europe. And what we have in the US is more of a, a consumer privacy approach to this problem, at least at least right now. Um, so we, we look at it from the private sector as a privacy concern, Uh, but mostly a, a problem for private companies. But what happens with data that the government uses? Like, is that is that the same approach that you have? Is that the same level of security, or like, or, or do does the government have a different, I guess, data quality procedures than than, than private companies? The, the the problem is the the fundamental problem of data quality is the same. Um, it is far more complicated in government. For example, uh, there are times that data isn't allowed from a from a pure perspective. If we if we if we took away laws and regulations and whatever else, we would actually say that data has low quality, but that would be by design. For example, in the United States, there are rules about what the different intelligence agencies can share with each other. Mm-hmm. From a certain point of view, that reduces data quality because the data that you need for a particular task might not be available to you when you need it. But for civil rights reasons, it's been decided that it's better to have lower quality from that kind of pure perspective mm-hmm. to make sure that people's rights are protected that, that in fact improves data quality at least on this particular metric could actually be um, dangerous mm-hmm. to to private citizens but separately you still have to even when you have those kind of walls and barriers in place It still has to be by design mm-hmm. and not by accident. Um, if you're going to have good data security, you still need to know where is the data? When was it created? Are there copies we don't know about? Mm-hmm. Are there are there places it's being used that were never designed for? Is there data decay? Data decay is when data becomes less reliable because it's out of date. Like if I collect an address about somebody, uh, five years later, we say that it's had decay because they might still be at that address or they might have moved and we don't know if it's current. But all of those are still security issues because if we don't know what data we have, we don't know 
if it's accurate, it's hard to protect these things when we don't know where they are and if yeah. they're right. And does that only concern to like personally identified information? Is this just a, a matter that we should be concerned because it's, you know, we're talking about our names and phones and, and emails, or is this uh, something else that we might not have in mind? You know, most, most people are probably using now, um, you know, like a password management system that is not even a personal thing, or maybe it is. And, and uh, so does this affect other areas of like information or just personal information? In general, in general, you should always want to have good data quality. Okay. Otherwise, the data should not be retained. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if it's data that isn't needed, then we probably shouldn't keep it. If we do need it, then we should keep it with, in, with good quality. The, the important thing is that, uh, the important thing to me, thinking about it from a purely security perspective, is that a lot of times some of these relationships between quality and security aren't understood. For example, for example, I used this example from this book where uh, it was talking about a company where they thought data was only created in one place, but it was actually created somewhere else. Now the author, her name is Danette, Danette McGilvray, she focused on it from a quality perspective. She says, if you've trained those two teams in different data entry standards, you're not going to get the same quality of data from both teams. So you're going to end up with a quality problem. Okay. I'm looking at it from a security perspective. And I'm saying, if you don't know which teams can create sensitive data, mm -hmm. you may not put equal security controls okay. on both teams, right? Mm -hmm. Suppose that you're like, well, we need to make sure that this team over here creating this very sensitive data must use two-factor authentication. Uh -huh. But if you don't know there's another team that can create the data and you don't require them to use two-factor authentication, mm -hmm. you've, left, you've left the security of this particular data vulnerable because you didn't, you didn't protect it all the way around. Yeah, and, the, and what what are the incentives of of in this case uh, companies to to just keep doing the way that it, the things are going? You know, like for example, this company that also allows them to for the people in the field to input the data. Uh, is it because it's just easier for them, or is it because they just want to attract more cons more consumers? No, the, the the problem here is. What's, what's good news, a lot of times in security, incentives don't necessarily line up, but here incentives can line up where it's good for organizations if they're um, commercial organizations or not-for-profit or government organizations. There are, there, are, there are positive incentives here to resolve, to improve the data quality. Okay. Um, what tends to be the challenge is um, it's 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 really just the nature of um, um, the fast evolution of systems, right? Like in technology, our systems evolve so quickly, so fast that, or at least I'd say this is one of the problems that 
it's a it's it's a difficult thing to centralize, mm-hmm. and and maybe there are even reasons where it shouldn't be centralized. But then you have to come up with a non-centralized solution. Yeah. Because because what you get is you get uh, most organizations have infrastructure and then operations on the infrastructure. So you have some kind of shared storage, some kind of shared data space. And then, well, over here, we've got people who do this job with the data. And over here, we have people who do this job with the data. And the, the, the kind of natural way that can fall out is to not, to not ensure that the data has high and equal quality across. Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit of effort to ensure that it does. Fortunately... There are incentives for that, that higher data quality improves profitability. It improves an organization's effectiveness when they're a nonprofit to do their job or a government in order to provide services to citizens or, or, or you know, whomever they're, they're, they're doing something for. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a motivation to do the right thing. Yeah. So then, like, if, if it's uh, having better data quality, it's going to be ultimately beneficial for the companies as well. Um, so is it, is it something that uh, maybe the you know legislators could look into as you know setting standards? Because uh, offline, we were talking about uh, this issue with uh, cache servers. And yes. uh, I, I wonder if you could just explain to uh, our listeners a little bit about the, the issue in general so that we can go into, you know, if it's something that could only private companies should be looking into it and like setting policies for it, or if it's something that needs to, a little push from, from legislators as well. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a story from my work um, that, that I thought of, you know, after reading uh, some of the things in this book on data quality from McGill Gray. Um, I was working on a project where there was a system that had an, a, a database mm-hmm. and the database had confidential information. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was social security numbers, whatever it was, it had confidential information. The database was correctly configured. The, the sensitive data was encrypted so that if, uh, if somebody stole this server uh, physically or if they, you know, hacked into it or whatever else, the, the sensitive data was protected. Okay. So, good. Here's the problem. This system is a, a, is a cloud-based system and it is used, I know for sure it is used across the United States. It might be used in other countries. Okay. When you want to query a database, there is obviously a delay if your query has to go all the way back to the central server. Mm-hmm. So instead, you can have what's called a proxy, okay. which is basically just a system that's it's kind of like a stand-in. It, it works on behalf of the, the real system. Mm-hmm. And so this proxy works like this. It's called a caching proxy. The idea is this caching proxy, and you could have many of them spread out, mm-hmm. can be closer or, or uh, you know, we don't, networks take time, even when they're traveling data at the speed of light, you know, you have to get around the world, whatever else. If you, if you put a server closer to where it's needed, mm-hmm. 
it responds faster and gives better performance. Okay. So they put a proxy, they put proxies around to speed up the, the, the requests. And, and the way this works is when you need something from the database, you first ask the proxy. Okay. For a, this type of caching proxy, if it doesn't have it, then it goes and gets the data from the, the, the real database okay. and brings it to this caching database. And then uh, if you need that same data again in the future, which this is very common in computers, that the data is needed multiple times, mm -hmm. then for those subsequent times, you only have to ask the proxy mm -hmm. and not the original. And the proxies will typically have a policy for um, how long they'll keep data before they uh, flush it or release it or get rid of it. In this particular system, the data was decrypted at the original server and then arriving in this caching proxy. And they were keeping the data there, if I remember, it was at least 45 days, but it might have been 90. I think okay. it was actually 90 days. Mm -hmm. So the, the point was they had this data quality problem where they, they knew they had data in one place, but they didn't really understand all the other places the data was being stored, even temporarily, which meant that they had a computer security problem. They had secured the data in the main central database, uh -huh. but they hadn't thought through needing to secure it in this this server that was there to make things more efficient and faster. So in in an effort to, you know, I guess, have a better service for their clients or their internal company, they used this uh, method of just uh, ha having this hashing server to, ha to have the data faster, right? But then yes. they, they failed to secure that as, as well as they did with the original data, which was the main server, right? Yes, and, and I don't know the timeline. It's entirely possible that they put both the server and the caching servers in place before um, before they necessarily even decided that secure data would be in the database, right? Like okay. you, you could have this infrastructure set up generically. Mm -hmm. And then when you're like, oh, we're going to start storing confidential information in this database, We need to make sure it's encrypted, but without understanding everywhere the data is, right? That that analysis just doesn't always end up being comprehensive. Thank you for listening to this first part of the interview with Dr. Nielsen. In our next episode, he will tell us what are the incentives private companies have to improve their data quality. Here's a little preview of the next part of this interview. The, the incentives on how we treat data in a company don't line up well. When, when, when Netflix is concerned about streaming its data out to millions of people around the planet, they're really concerned about holding on to that intellectual property. This podcast is sponsored by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. This project is part of the Bromley Fellowship, which provides research training and mentorship opportunities to graduate students of the University of Texas. 
aiming to involve students in international affairs early in their career to prepare the next generation of leaders to help develop solutions to the most pressing public policy challenges. I am Jaime Cabrera and thank you for getting into the tech of it.